Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is walking us through the series, A Life That Pleases God. In this series, we have been looking at what faith is. The author of Hebrews defines faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So far, we have seen different types of individuals who displayed remarkable faith in God. Each person's faith was on display in very different circumstances, and it was their faith in God that redeemed them. So what does faith do for those who abide in it? If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. The other guys, faith preserves. seats you're welcome to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 we're coming down to our last couple of messages on Hebrews today we're just talking about the other guys that faith perseveres Hebrews chapter 11 we've been studying this for some time now and we know that we began with the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. From there, we've looked at uh, more than a dozen specific examples of faith, typically tied to an individual Old Testament saint, haven't we? We've read things like, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by faith Rahab. And we've got all these by faiths. God specifically talks about an individual person and then attaches the faithful thing that they did as an example for us to follow. Today's passage doesn't read like that at all. In fact, when we read through Hebrews 11, 32 through 40, you're gonna scan that and you're gonna see we don't have uh, these names and accolades together in one person. We're gonna find names without accolades and accolades without names. It's going to read very differently. These are the other guys. The end of Hebrews 11 reads a lot like the end credits of a movie. You know what I'm talking about? You get to a movie, maybe you sit through part of it, maybe you're one of those that likes to watch those after credits scenes and movies and things, and so you stick around and you see weird things like, you know, the gaffer. I mean, who's the gaffer? What is that? Uh, do you remember any of those people from the movies? Typically not. I mean, can you actually name the best boy electrics, you know, from Star Wars? Anybody? You don't remember these guys. All those people at the end as it's going by, costume designer and things, you don't much care because by the time that part of the movie shows up, you've already dumped your half-eaten popcorn in the trash and you're already in the road going home. And so Hebrews 11, the end of this, can almost just kind of read, you know, we've got all these big names, Moses and Noah and Abraham and and then you get to the other guys here at the end of the chapter, you know. Uh, something we're going to learn here from the other guys is that faith must persevere. All the who've lived by faith have persevered. Perseverance of the saints, perseverance in and through faith through the rest of your life is a running theme throughout the book of Hebrews. We see in Hebrews chapter three, in verse six, he says, and we are his house if... Indeed, we hold fast our confidence. That's our confidence in Christ, not that just you're a bold person. He says, and our boasting in our hope. Again, that's in Christ. We hold fast to that. He says, Hebrews 3.14, and we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence to the end. Hebrews 6.11, we desire that each of you show the same earnestness and have the full assurance of hope 
until the end. You see this frequently in Hebrews and all throughout the Bible. He who endures to the end shall be saved. That true faith will persevere. True faith isn't something that just grows up. I get excited about Jesus for a little bit and then I drop him. That's the faith of Hebrews chapter six, if you've ever read that. You know that passage of Hebrews when you're reading through it and you stop and you go, I need to circle this and ask somebody about that. What does that mean? Because in Hebrews six, you're reading about faith that is that flash in the pan, lighter fluid faith. It just it burns up bright and glorious, but it doesn't last. It doesn't have the coals and embers that last like true faith does. Instead, Hebrews 6 faith, it says it's enlightened about God. It knows things about God. It loves to gather knowledge about God. It says that they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tried out the Christian life. They've tried out this way. They've gone to church. They've done these Christian things. They come alongside of, all, alongside of all of us and they like the Christian feel and experience. It says that they have even uh, been partakers of these events where the Holy Spirit of God himself is active and alive and doing things. And, and, and in their day, many of them would have actually seen miraculous things take place. They've seen the power of God. They know God is real. They know he works and does mighty things in us even today, we see how he transforms the lives of one another. We're enlightened. We try it out. We see the Holy Spirit working. And then eventually at some point in time, we just, because of hardship and trial, we just back away from God and say, you know, I don't need God so much in my life anymore. True faith doesn't do that. By the way, that person didn't lose their salvation in Hebrews 6. We need to know that. And if you're going to use Hebrews 6 as a proof text for why you can lose your salvation, you need to be also one who teaches once lost, always lost that having lost your salvation, you can never get it back because in that same passage in Hebrews 6, it talks about that that person who falls away, it is impossible, not hard, impossible to renew them again unto repentance. They won't be able to repent again. This is a hardened individual. This is an apostate, someone who wasn't truly born again. So true faith isn't like apostasy where it grows up bright, bright and glorious for a little bit and then fades out because of hardship, because of trial, because God disappointed us. True faith perseveres like the, 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 these saints here. As we look at these saints at the end, sometimes we can kind of feel bad for some of these saints that they didn't get all the credit and, if you will, the recognition that maybe some of these others do. And we just need to understand, number one, that faith is not recognized equally. Not the faith in the Bible, not faith in the church, not faith anywhere. We've just looked at a dozen examples of faith. Abraham gets two references by himself, two. Moses gets six verses by himself, six verses, several examples talking about Moses, things that he did by faith and in the life, uh, lifetime of Moses. And then you have the other guys in Hebrews 11. You see, hey, we get names without accolades. Verse 32 says, and what more shall I say? It's somebody at the end of an award ceremony, they're holding their Emmy or their Grammy or their something. And I'd like to thank this person and this person, this person and all the other people because you just don't have time. And that's, that's kind of how this feels to us when we read this. You know, we got a lot of these names that are just kind of tacked on at the end because we really don't have time to go through every act of faith from every saint ever. And so amongst, you know, the key grip and the best boy greens, we get names like this. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Who are those guys? What do those four names have in common? What do you know about them? What was their role? These are judges, weren't they? Judges, who were the judges in the Old Testament? Remember after the book of Joshua, we get to judges. 
It was a dark period of Israel's history where they're rebelling and falling away from God and then eventually they go away from God long enough under enough pain and duress. They finally turn back to God and say, wow, we should never have left you. And God raises up, if you will, a superhero amongst them. I mean, very literally, you got folks like Samson, you know, who would have this supernatural God-given strength who could like rip the gates off of a city and who could kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, these are, these are legendary men, these mighty tribal leaders, uh, you know, who had the power of a king and who had often great power like Samson and others. And they delivered the nation of Israel from a period of bondage and suffering and slavery being dominated by a foreign power and brings them back into a period of freedom under God to serve him. These are the kind of men that boys and girls would tell about around the campfire. And all they get is a passing reference, just a star on the wall. Oh yeah, time would fail to tell me of all these superheroes of your past, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, yeah, all those guys, you remember them. He only mentions one king, David, the one that was a man after God's own heart. He doesn't even mention the first king of Israel, Saul. He doesn't mention the wisest king to ever live, Solomon. He doesn't mention Josiah, one of the few good kings who led Israel when he found the word of God again, led them in a nationwide revival, that's pretty significant. Or even Hezekiah, who restored the very temple of God itself to its glory. These sound like pretty good kings that we ought to remember, but they're not even mentioned. And then he just says, Samuel and the prophets. Mention Samuel, yes, very mighty prophet, very important, influential prophet. You're not gonna mention, though, Elijah and Elisha? You remember Elijah, you remember him, the, the guy who, who opposed the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Right? Elijah, the guy who went up in a fiery chariot into the sky, didn't even die. Elijah? Elisha, the man who was so mighty in prayer with God that he could pray and literally change the weather. He could stop the rain and he could bring the rain back under the power of, of, of prayer. Just don't ask about how he called bears from the woods. Uh, Elisha, I mean, these are great guys and we don't even get a reference. And then we see accolades without names. We get things, great mighty deeds of faith that were done, things that are life-defining, life-altering steps of faith, and they don't even get credit. It's like the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington. You know, you go there and, and there, there's, there's these mighty deeds. You know that these, these men suffered and they did these great mighty acts and now we don't even know who this is. And that's kind of how this reads out here as we read this. It says that these people who also lived lives of tremendous faith, it, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. This is, these are powerful events. Events wrought through faith in God's power. Pretty impressive. We could probably guess a few of those guys. Yeah, we don't have their names, but I mean, who else do you know that stopped the mouths of lions in the Bible? Probably Daniel. You know, you read through things like this and you see things like quench the power of fire. I mean, who comes to your mind when you think of quench the power of fire? You know, you think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and the fiery furnace. Uh, you read stories about women who received their, you know, their loved ones back to life. You know, we think of probably of Elijah and Elisha with the stories of the widow at Zarephath and the, and the, the woman at Shunem. 
These are amazing stories of faith. And all they get is a passing reference. Some of you, you get a star on the wall. You know, some of you get a name. Who knows what you did? Or some of them, they, they just get an accolade, you know. But, we don't, but it's not even attributed to you. And it just, it's kind of like it doesn't, doesn't seem fair. I think that's something we could acknowledge, is that God is not, God is just, but he's not fair. In other words, God, God is just, but he's not equitable in that he doesn't give us all exactly the same thing. I mean, do we all make the same amount of money here? We don't. Do we all, are we all the same height? Do we all have the same talents? Do we all have, you know, no, we all have, we live differently. God is not fair in that he gives all of us equally. God never intended it to be that way. Jesus himself said, the poor you shall have with you always. And so even when it comes to recognition, God does, God will sometimes allow some people to be recognized more than others. It's that way in the Bible. It's that way in the real world too, isn't it? And if you remember, some of you guys were alive around World War II. Uh, Fewer and few of you were glad. You all remember this picture, don't you? What's this celebrating? Okay, VE Day, victory in Europe. Everybody's happy. This is one of the most joyous times in American history, isn't it? You know, you're playing on the radio, happy days are here again, you know. It's just, it's exciting. Brass bands are coming, meeting people, coming off the trains and off the boats. Uh, You've got uh, people with signs, waving flags, people are cheering for you. The heroes of World War II have come home. And it was well-deserved praise. These guys were suffering in Europe. Uh, they're suffering in the Pacific and just going through untold hardship. And I'm glad they received that accolade. But fast forward a few years to the 1960s and, and the soldiers came home again, not except after what war? Vietnam. Was that a different reception that those soldiers got? That, was, that came quick, didn't it? That was a very different reception, wasn't it? They got stuff like this. They got protest. People were upset we were, America was again embroiled in a bitter battle in the jungles of Vietnam, a, a war met with skepticism, and America was polarized. It was divided in a war that was accused of being unwinnable and with no clear objectives. And so often our, our soldiers who were suffering over there received the brunt of that. There was protests everywhere. In 1967, more than 100,000 people were protesting at the Lincoln Memorial. Y'all remember that? Uh, And not too far from here, maybe four hours from here at Kent State University on Ohio, did something big happen there? Yeah, we had the National Guard open fire for some reason on some of these protesters shot and killed four people. Over this war, this was a difficult time. And so unfortunately, because of some of the bad press that Vietnam got, some of people's anger and vitriol got poured upon our soldiers when they came home. Did they have that coming? Now, these are men who bled and died, just like the friends in World War II. But unfortunately, they they didn't receive the same accolades. They bled and died, they suffered, they served their country with distinction, with honor, but they come home and it's just, if if they're lucky, they don't hear anything. If they're unlucky, you know, people are maybe upset with them and maybe try to take out their anger about the war upon that person. So even in real life, we're not all rewarded equally. They all suffered equally, they didn't get rewarded equally. It's that way in life and it's even, we even see that in the Bible. Not everybody is mentioned with, with, with equal airtime here. Even in the church, it's gonna feel like sometimes some people get recognized and others don't. You may feel like you're one of the forgotten here. I don't know. Is that fair? Well, again, all of life is not fair. We can't always recognize everybody equally, can we? There's gonna be some people who are up front and we notice what they do and we, we try to make sure that we take note of, we want to, as the Bible talks about in the spiritual gifts passages, to bestow greater honor on those parts which are invisible, those serving things. 
It's not always going to be perfect. Is that okay? It's not okay if the only reason you're doing it is to be noticed by people. But if we're serving Jesus, we're happy when we get the accolades, but we're just as happy knowing that Jesus has seen what we did. In fact, Jesus warned us sometimes about not doing spiritual things just to be seen by people. <clears throat> There's a passage in Matthew 6 that I always call the secret service. Uh, the three things that, that he was warning Christians, you know, do these privately and just be glad that God sees it. Don't be worried about that people notice you doing it. And it's on prayer, giving, and fasting. And as he introduces this section in verse one, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, it's okay to do spiritual things in front of people. I mean, we, we see Jesus praying in public, okay? So it's not wrong to pray in front of people. It's not wrong if somebody notices you putting your offering in the box. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. It's not like you need to hide it. Hey, make sure everybody's gone first. Now we can, you know, stealthily sneak this offering into the box, Whew, you know? Uh, it's okay if somebody stumbles on the fact that you're fasting for the Lord, both of you here who have ever done it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you, you, those weird Christians do exist, those who have fasted and pushed away willingly from a plate of brisket, you know, just to pray. Those, those creatures exist. But Jesus warns us. He says, beware of doing these things in order to be seen by them. In other words, that was your heart intention. I want to be noticed. By the way, how do you know if that was your intention? What are some warning signs that maybe you're doing things just to be seen by people? It's that you're drawing attention to what you did. You're not content that Jesus sees what you did. You want to make sure others see that. So, uh... <clears throat> Did you see that new piano we got in church today? <laughs> yeah, I gave to that. I hope you like it. Did it sound good? You know, and we're just trying to draw attention to that. I mean, I don't want to draw attention to myself or anything. Yes, I do. Uh, you know, or we just, hey, so when this happened, did you like that? Did it, did it sound good? Did, you know, did we want, did you want to hear more about this? Did you, pastors can be bad, the worst about this. So what'd you think about that sermon? You never ask that question. You don't want to hear the answer. Because the times, the times that you think you knocked it out of the park, they're like, well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. Buckle up, pastor, you know. You're doing it, you're doing it because you need internally. You, want, you just want to feel that reception from your audience rather than just to know I faithfully communicated the word of God. We can do that. You know, or we throw it up on Facebook. Here's me working hard for Jesus at the church, you know. And we just, we want people. And again, if somebody takes your picture and throws it online, there's nothing wrong with that. But is it possible that we just, you know, would throw this up? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Look at me. Hey, look at me. Would somebody please tell me that I'm pretty and beautiful and fun and, and, and hardworking and wow, you're such a servant of Jesus. Now, again, we can, that can, we can stumble into that and we weren't seeking that, but if somebody praised us through it, there's nothing wrong with that. But, if, but you know in your heart, when the reason, the heart motive behind what you did was because I desperately want the approval of men. Jesus warns us, he says, beware when that was your intention, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Why not? Just because I did a good spiritual act, I still did a good spiritual act, why don't I get a reward? Because it was no longer of faith. Just trusting that your God who alone saw what you gave, who saw what you did, it wasn't enough for us. We had to have people's approval, and now it's by sight, not by faith, and God rewards a life of faith. Just be content that God sees, and by the way, does God see when we, when we pray, when we fast, when we give? Is it enough just to know that God alone sees that? Let me tell you what Jesus said in that same passage. In talking about giving, Matthew 6, 3, he says, your father who sees in secret, 
will do what? will reward you because he saw you in secret. You did it by faith. If no human ever saw what I did, if no human ever tells me you're great, you're beautiful, you're incredible, you're awesome, I wish my children would be like you, I'm gonna name my first child after you. Is it enough to know that God saw what you did and will in some way reward you? If yes, we did it by faith. If nobody recognizes what you did and you do it anyway, just because God sees it, you did it by faith. Talking about prayer, he says in Matthew 6, 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Talking about fasting, Matthew 6, 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Are you noticing a, a pattern here? God loves to reward Christian whose only motive is to serve God and do spiritual things only because God sees it. Only because I know that God rewards it. And when we serve God for that invisible reward, for a God that we cannot see, God says, I will reward you. Because even though no human may recognize what you've done, and it doesn't feel fair because they recognized other people, but they didn't notice me, God says, don't worry about that. I saw you. I saw what you've done, and I will reward you. And we serve God just to be seen, not of men, but by God. Well, faith, we find number two, when we look at this example, we'll see that faith is often attacked. He, go, he kind of turns in this list in verse 30, midway through verse 35, and he says, of these people, some of them were tortured. I'm not gonna have you raise your hands because it would be a pretty small number. How many have been tortured for your faith? But these were, they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They were seeking something better beyond this world. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, and they went about in skins of sheep and goats. That's when you don't have much. Anybody wear a goat skin shirt this morning? Nobody? Okay, you don't have a whole lot. They're not comfortable. But there were people who were willing to endure that for God. They were destitute. I know we got some of those here. Okay. It, they were afflicted. They were mistreated. These are difficult things, and yet Hebrews 11 recognizes that these are things that are common to those who live a life of faith. Historically and around the world, people who have lived lives of faith experience many of the things that I just read. In fact, I'm gonna tell you this, having traveled around the world into areas where the church is heavily persecuted, I will tell you this, one observation that I'll make. In areas of the world where these things are not present, false Christianity abounds. In areas of the world where we don't see mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment and destitution, affliction and mistreatment, false Christianity abounds. Why? Because everybody in the world, you know, that country song recognizes everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody likes Jesus. Everybody wants to be attached to him because everybody wants to go to heaven, but not everybody wants to give their life for Jesus. We love that Jesus gave his life for us, but we don't want to return the favor. And so when persecution and difficulty arises, what happens to their faith? Who, me? What, not Jesus? I don't know Jesus. You know, we're Peter at the fire. I don't know him. I will, I will solemnly swear on the gold of the temple. I do not know this man. And, when, and we're, that's, there's that temptation Persecution and Christianity, though, we have to recognize they go hand in hand, don't they? If you're gonna live a life of faith, if you're truly living out your faith, 
You've taken that lamp and you've taken out from under the bushel, under that basket, and you're shining that light. The world doesn't appreciate that light. The world does not love the light. Jesus said in John 3 that they avoid the light lest their evil deeds be reproved. People don't like you shining lights. But Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all, that's pretty inclusive, by the way. That's everybody here. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? What does your Bible say? You're gonna be persecuted. Is that a true statement? Let me ask you this now. This is the hard one. Are you being persecuted? If we're not suffering anything for our faith, and I don't mean somebody is beating you, you know, that you're afraid to walk out of your house because somebody with a stick is gonna come by and whack you. Um, I'm talking about, does your Christian life cost you anything? Does anybody disagree with your life? Does anybody disagree with your moral positions? Does anybody provide any kind of resistance to you at all? If, if our answer to that is no, can we honestly say that we're, we're living an openly godly life in Christ Jesus? Paul doesn't seem to feel that way. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience some form of persecution, even if it's simply that somebody's like, you're a believer? I've been told this, you're a believer? I thought you were smarter than that. Okay, that is suffering for your faith. It's a measure of suffering. Remember here in this list here, he's talking about others suffered mocking and flogging. But if, we, if our faith is public, if we talk about Jesus, if we hold to the Bible, if we hold to biblical standards of morality, especially come election time, okay? People are gonna see what you believe. They're gonna see how you feel about homosexuality and abortion and all these other moral issues. And they're not gonna like how you stand on that. And they will persecute you. And maybe that persecution is just as simple as they distance themselves. We're not gonna be friends anymore. Are you willing to endure that? The Bible says all who desire to live godly will. Paul suffered, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Why less one? Because it was understood in that day that 40 lashes would kill a man. So Paul has been beaten five times within an inch of his life and let go. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger of rivers and robbers, and, and he just goes on and on and on. This is a whole resume. If you think that, that if I, anyone has suffered for his faith, friends, I more. I believe in this gospel that I'm living for. It's just evidence that if Paul asked you to go on a mission trip, you better have good insurance. He went through it, friends. He suffered. And that is coming from the man who wrote half of the New Testament. Do good, godly people still suffer? You all can tell stories, can't you? Godly people still suffer for Jesus. In fact, all will suffer for that stand for Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. This list that I just read of Paul, you know, five times at the hands of the Jews being beaten and lashed and shipwrecked and all these horrible, scary things that Paul went through. What if when you went to sign on the dotted line that I'm gonna put my faith in Jesus, God says, you can trust in Jesus and I will save you from your sins, but you will endure all that suffering for me. Would you still do it? Would you still put your faith in Jesus knowing full well that's gonna lead to a life of beatings, a life of mockery, and at the end of your life, they're gonna behead you. Would you still sign on the line to follow Jesus? Our answer to that question reveals a lot about the authenticity of our faith. 
Is Jesus worth it? For these guys here in Hebrews 11, these unnamed guys who have accolades with no names, it was worth it to them. Persecution often tests the reality of our faith because will phony faith hold up? It will not. Remember in Mark chapter four, Jesus is telling us a story about the parable of the, the sower and the seeds. Remember, they, they just take this bag of seeds and they're just throwing it on the ground and, and some of them land on good soil and it rises up and bears fruit. It's a picture of a true believer. It endures to the place of bearing fruit. But there's some other seeds. It falls onto the path, you know, and there's some seed that falls on hard soil. It doesn't even go in the soil. It never grows to anything. We know that guy's going to hell. Okay, so they did nothing happen. But then we have a couple other seeds that seem kind of iffy on the line. They, they, they grow up for a little bit, and then it's choked out. And we would look at that and go, well, that, they're, they're, they look like they have outward signs of life. Maybe that's a believer, and then they got choked out. They lost their salvation. That's not what he's teaching here. Okay? He's saying that you have people who have been enlightened to God. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've been around and partakers of this event. They've come to church. They've been a part of things. They see the power of God and they fall away. Mark 4, 17 says, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. They only endure for a period of time. They only have faith when it suits them for a bit and then they fall away. He says, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, not just persecution. Sometimes you can be persecuted just because your skin color. We're not talking about that. Persecution that arises on account of the word. Your stand for Jesus has brought difficult, negative things into your life. He says, when that happens, he says, immediately they fall away. This is a word that, that refers to apostasy. There's someone who, who liked to be aligned with Jesus when it suited their needs, and as soon as their faith was gonna cost them, they cut and run. We're out of here. We're not gonna follow Jesus any longer. That's not the symptom of a true believer. True faith perseveres to the end. That's a running theme through Hebrews. Only one of these seeds had true saving faith. Now, should we expect our faith to be attacked? I will tell you this, only if your faith is visible to other people. Years ago when it was relevant, they would talk about Lady Claire, all Christians, only, only God knows. You know, that, re that reference means nothing to anybody born after like 1990. But they always referred to that. You know, only God knows if you're truly a believer. If you're one of those believers who's just kind of hiding behind the scenes and nobody ever knows who you really are, they don't, they don't know that you stand for Jesus, you might get through the better part of life without being persecuted. We can take our lamp, we can put it under a basket. But do you really wanna show up and stand before God one day? And you will. Do you really want to stand for God one day and he looks at your life to see what you've done? Not to measure good, you know, your, your sins and whether or not you're going to heaven, but measuring our lives for how we lived in terms of our reward. Do you want to stand before God and say, you know what? I kept my lamp under a bushel, yes, but there's good reasons. I, I grew up in a hard world and they didn't like Christians. So you understand, Jesus. You understand why I didn't want to be noticed as a Christian. I didn't want to stand out as a believer. And so I just, I, I hid my light. You get it, don't you? Who does that sound like? The person who hid what God gave them. It sounds like the, the parable of the minus, the money. Remember the master gives money. Hey, go work for me for a while. I'm coming back and I will receive an account of what you have done for me. And you have some of these guys, guys gets five, guy gets two, and they're working hard. This guy with the one, what'd he do with his money? He buried it in the earth. He says, I knew you were a hard and austere man. You are reaping where you didn't sow. In other words, I'm not gonna give my life to serve you when I get nothing from it for me. Why would I give my money and my efforts to something that doesn't make my life better? So I played it safe. 
I buried what you gave me and I just stuck it in the earth and I did nothing with that gift. Behold, have it back. And there's, some, there's gonna be a number of Christians who stand before God at the end of their life and say, here's your, here's your mina, Lord. Here's your talent. Here's that money you gave me, that gospel, that seed that you planted in my life. And I just buried it in the earth and I did nothing with it. Behold, have it back. Do you remember what Jesus, or what the master said in that parable to that servant that buried his talent, did nothing with it? He didn't say, well, better look next time. He, he said, you wicked servant. When we play it safe, God calls that wickedness. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? But when we consider this, playing it safe in life is considered the absence of faith. A life that has no difficulty, no trials, no mockery, no, no difficulty, no persecution, there's just no difficulty in your life, you're just walking easily through life. That sounds a lot like the wide path, doesn't it? The wide path and easy is the way. The problem is where does the end of that path go? That leads to destruction. So you can play it safe in life where nobody opposes you. The wide path where it's an easy, free, free and clear path where you're just floating down the river with the rest of the world. The ones who march upriver, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there's only a tiny few that find it because most people aren't willing to suffer for your faith because suffering is always the watershed of faith. You're either gonna go this way or this way. When suffering hits, it separates the sheep from the goats who are truly part of God's pasture. Well, for those that persevere in faith, those who are willing to endure the words and the, the persecution of others, can I just reveal to you from, from Hebrews 11 how God feels about you when you are willing so much to believe in him that you will suffer for, his faith, for your faith? You know how God feels? Remember, God has just read through this list and he talks about them being tortured and imprisoned and mocked and flogged and destitute and mistreated. And then in the middle of this gigantic list of all the ways that these people suffered for their faith, it's like he just stops parenthetically. He just stops for a moment. It's almost like a father describing the noble acts of his son and he just chokes up and he says, of whom the world was not worthy. And then he continues with the rest of his verse wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and the cave of the earth. When we suffer for God, does God notice that suffering? He sees it all. And let me tell you, it's not just because you're going through suffering and nothing changes right away. It's not that God does not care. He sees it and he has pained in his heart for us. He sees the suffering of all these saints in Hebrews 11 who suffered greatly for their faith. They're willing to, their faith is willing to endure hardship and mockery and loss of friends, sometimes loss of jobs, loss of promotions, sometimes loss of life. And God just pauses in that list and says, of whom the world is not worthy. This world does not deserve the beauty of my children. And that's a fact. You ever felt that way as a parent? Ideally, y'all are good parents. Are y'all good parents? Are there any bad parents here this morning who just like to show of hands? We, want it, we all consider ourselves to be good parents, or we want to be. And so we raise our children up, especially if you're a Christian parent. We take God's word, and we try to raise our children in a way that honors God. We teach them to share, because if you haven't noticed in the nursery, that's not innate to human nature, to share. We teach our children to share. We teach them to be thankful. Say, thank you. Mm, thank you. Give me the cookie. Teach them to say thank you. We teach them to be kind to others. We teach them to include others. You know, you're dropping your kid off and you see one little kid in the corner and you tell your kid, hey, you go see that kid, you, you befriend that kid. 
you bring him in. But mom, he's nerdy. You bring him in. You know, we, we teach him to be kind and inclusive and just, just all these things. And we, we send these beautiful little lambs of ours into this world. Are all the other parents teaching their kids like yours? No, your kid comes home with a goose egg on his head because some other kid clocked him in the head with a Tonka truck, the old metal kind, not these plastic things they got today. You know, and you're just like, it upsets you because they're not playing by the same rules and yet your child is walking by faith, trusting you, obeying God, obeying his parents and going into the world and bringing the light of beauty, of, of, of love and sharing to this world and the world doesn't appreciate it and they whack your kid in the head with a toy. I felt that way very strongly uh, one time with one of my children. We raised our children up to be loving and considerate and sharing and kind. And, and uh, when we were overseas, we had homeschooled our kids all their life, but there was a period of time for a year and a half we had to focus on language. We put them into international school. And this, mind you, was a supposedly a, a Christian international school. And we, they get there, and there was a, a new girl in school that comes in, and we encouraged our daughter, why don't you go befriend this girl? She's just kind of quiet. She's new. She's insecure. So would, would you just befriend her and bring her in? She did, and took her around to her friends, brought her into that social group. Well, uh, at some point in time, she had a falling out, which I discovered as a father, that happens with girls in, the, in those, like, preteen, kind of 12, 13 years, you notice that? I had a son go through the preteen years, and that was a cake, cakewalk, I'll tell you what. Uh, they smell a little bit worse, they eat 10 times as much, and they play a lot of video games. But that was my son's teenage years, and the boys got along very well. Yeah, they beat each other up, but it was fun. The girls, however, the emotional beatings that girls give each other at that age are absolutely brutal. I had two girls come after my son and nothing prepared me for the emotional beating my daughters would receive at the hands of girls at school. And so these girls, these sweet little you lambs that I sent off to, to, to school here that I've taught to be kind and considerate and sharing and loving and inclusive of other people, they get to school and it's not that way. And there was this girl that she made a very close friend with and there was this like alpha girl is that a term, alpha girl? It is now. See, she comes alongside of, the, of this friend that my daughter had brought into her friendship circles. And because my daughter and that girl just kind of had a falling out, this alpha girl one comes up to this friend that she had just befriended, took her away from her physically and glared at her as she walked away and left my daughter. And she comes home crying. Now, how, as a dad, how do you think I'm feeling? My sweet little lamb that I have raised to love Jesus and love people, my sweet little daughter who shares, includes people, who's kind, who is loyal as they come. And these girls are mistreating my daughter and she is crying on my couch right now. Do you know I know it? I quoted this verse angrily and under my breath of whom the world is not worthy. I felt like this world doesn't deserve my sweet kids that I send out in the world selfish and just biting and clawing on each other like that. You don't deserve to have a friend like her. That's how I felt as a father. You know, God feels much that same way about his children. God knows that he is sending you out playing by a different set of rules than everybody. He knows he's trained you to be loving and sharing and kind, not to speak evil of people, not to wound and hurt people. And yet they're gonna do that to you. It's not fair. And for some people, it makes them want to walk back on their faith. But you know what God says? He says, of those people that endure that persecution and that suffering, the world isn't worthy of you. That's how proud your God is of you when we suffer for that faith. We may want to walk back on it, to quit, walk back on our relationships. I'll never be their friend again. Walk back on a church. I'll never go there again. I got hurt one time, never going back. 
You know, I got hurt by this family member. I'm going to abandon my family because I'm not going to try to work that out. And just, there's, there's oftentimes where we're, we feel internal pressure to walk away from our faith commitments. And yet, true faith perseveres. We persevere in trusting God. That God hasn't called us just to live a life of ease. That he's called us to suffer for our faith. You know, Paul was writing the Corinthians, who lived in a very wicked day. To, to be Corinthianized was considered to be debauched and just immoral and wicked. In writing to them, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast. You be who you are, no matter how the world changes around you, don't you change. He says, be immovable. Don't let the world bully you and push you into their mold. You be, a, you be immovable. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your Labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's a lot of vain things that we can do in life. Vain means empty. It means it doesn't produce anything worth having. You can do a lot of vain stuff. There was one time in my, my young years as, a, as an adult man, I filled out a publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes form thinking that I would get a knock on the door from Ed McMahon. Ask your parents. Uh, and I, you know, it, it, didn't, it was vain. It was an empty waste of time. Never did it again. You know, you play the lottery. It's a waste of your time. They're gonna eat. There's a reason the lottery makes a lot of money. It's your money they're making. You know, there's a lot of vain things that you can do. Uh, you can try to clean the house with toddlers. That's pretty vain. You can do your hair and then get in a convertible. That's vain. It's, it's not going to produce what you hoped for. And we can feel like that in the ministry sometimes as we serve God. What good is this doing? I'm teaching to these kids every week in my Sunday school class. Doesn't seem to see any change in them. Obviously, it's doing no good. I think I'm going to quit. I've been in this church. I've been serving for so many years. I'm just not seeing God move. I, I'm just going to leave that. I'm going to walk away from that. This is not an uncommon feeling amongst believers. This feeling of, I don't see enough progress fast enough. Therefore, God must not be at work. I think I'm just going to give up and quit. And so he tells them, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain when it's in the Lord. God promises his word will not return void. There, it will accomplish the purpose that I have sent it out to do. Well, number three here, we're gonna see that faith does not receive immediate blessing. And we all kind of nod our heads and go, yeah, I know, I'm not a prosperity teacher. Uh, but it's actually true. <laughs> There's sort of in the back of our hearts and minds, sometimes we feel like God should immediately reward our behavior. I, I know so because I've gone to church with many of us who sometimes act like that. Uh, I, I had a fellow who, in one of my churches, he came up to me, and mind you, this fellow was as faithful as they came. If they missed church, I knew somebody was vomiting or had a compound fracture. This guy was always in church, and when he came, he was always smiling, always friendly, uh, always serving, uh, very faithful givers. I mean, they just, everything you wanted a church member to be, that was like your prototype church member. And I just saw him come into church one day, and he was uncharacteristically sad. I just remember looking at this fellow saying, what's wrong? And then he just, with kind of, like his face was wrinkled in anger. He was so frustrated. He says, I don't get it. I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying every day. I've been tithing off the top, okay? That's when you know you're really trusting God, right? I don't give God what's left. I give him off the top. Boy, he's just saying, man, I really give... I gave it to God. Uh, I've been at church all the time. I raised my kids to, to love him. I'm kind to others, loving to my wife most days. And yet God allowed me to lose my job. And he just, he just kind of looked away with just fighting back tears and he's wiping away. Just, I just don't understand. 
And we resonate with that. It's frustrating, and we kind of look to God like, God, why did you allow this to happen? Because we know that we serve a sovereign God who's in control of all things. The day of prosperity and the day of adversity, God has made the one as well as the other. We know that theologically to be true, but when it happens to me, I didn't think God would do that with me. I thought I was just gonna read about it in the Old Testament with all these brothers and sisters who suffered even though they were living lives of faith. But when it happens to us, it tests our faith, doesn't it? Is God upset with me? Maybe, maybe not. Only you and God know, but is something wrong with with God? Is is, is he displeased or what's, what's wrong? The idea is sort of this tacit understanding that if I'm living a godly life, God will free all of the obstacles out in front of me. Does it work that way? Not in my life. If it has in yours and you know how to reproduce that, please write a book because the rest of us want to get in on that, but it isn't. Living a life of faith requires us to obey God without seeing an immediate result because if all we do is do good for God in hopings we can receive good from God, is that faith? Pretty quiet there. It's not faith, is it? It's cause and effect. And if, if every time we do good to God, we receive good from God, it's cause and effect. And the most obedient Christians in the world will be the ones that are the most carnal. I want a lot of things from this world, God, and so I'm gonna do this so I can get this. Hey, there it is. It's like, like planting a seed and plucking ripe fruit. I, just, I know how to work the system with God. That's not faith. God doesn't reward that. He doesn't work like that. Often God will make us work and work and work and serve and do right, and we never see the result of that. That's what we're gonna see here in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, And it says, in all these, talking about all these saints that we've been talking about, who've been living lives of faith, who have suffered for their faith. He says, all of these, though commended for their faith. In other words, they're, they're not half-hearted Christians even. Their life is such that God is saying, look at this guy, look what he has done. This is what life of faith looks like. So these are the heroes of the faith. He says, and all of these guys were though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. They died in faith, however. They served God, they lived obediently to him. They never saw the fruition of all the promises. We were reading through Hebrews 11. We see that they're constantly passing on to their kids this promise of the Abrahamic covenant. God is gonna provide us land, seed, and blessing someday. It's coming, kids. Is it here? No. Not in my lifetime, not in his lifetime, not in his lifetime, and yet they keep living by the promises of God knowing that it's coming someday. There is a future something better that's coming. God's gonna send his Messiah. Is he here? No. He's been promising it since Genesis 3. Where's the Messiah? He's coming, pass it on, keep waiting. And they live faithfully for that day. That's when it is truly faith. We don't always receive what is promised. I think it's amazing the kind of faith that these Old Testament saints could exhibit. Consider this, when they're following God by faith, many of them had a very partial Bible, only a few books of the Bible. And Enoch, Enoch didn't have any of the Bible. He long existed long before Moses in the books of the law. And so they didn't have a completed Bible. They didn't have, see the realization of God's Messiah and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. They're just simply looking forward to that day, living by faith, saying, I'm gonna follow you, God, even though I don't see what's coming. And that's what God is calling us to. God, we have to understand, is going to make his children live rightly, often without seeing immediate results from that. God will make us live rightly without seeing immediate results. That's what makes it faith. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to obey God's word? Now, I know all of you are, but there's some other people out there outside of this church that don't do that. 
I'm telling you because I've been to churches with folks like that. We encourage people to, to live rightly. I'll have somebody across my desk in the counseling room and we'll be encouraging them. They're living their wife against God's word and we'll call them back to the standard of God's word and they'll meet with counseling for a while and eventually they stop coming and they'll just say something like, it wasn't working for me. God's way wasn't really working, so I just kind of let it go. We've seen it in parenting trainings. We've been talking to parents individually. A lot of times you have a parenting training, you have like 10 micro-counseling sessions afterward. And, and sometimes these parents will say, you know what, I've tried the biblical way of you know, child-rearing. It didn't work for me. Is that why we obey God's word? Because it works? And when we say it works, what are we actually saying? It pragmatically gave me what I was hoping to receive. Does obedience to God always pragmatically lead to the outcome that I wanted? Not the way I've been living my faith. That's what makes it faith, is that we obey God not because it pragmatically works or brings the outcome I was looking for. We obey God because it's right. We obey God because we trust God. We obey God because we believe that his word is the right way to live and that it will ultimately lead to a path of blessing. And I don't know when that's coming. It may not be in this lifetime, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay that my greatest reward is going to come after you do my funeral. I'm all right with that. And God praises their faith. They did not receive what was promised. Faith has no room for the pragmatic Christian. Pragmatic Christianity, it's more like Buddhism. We used to go to Buddhist monasteries and Tibetan Buddhist temples and things. And, and you can light a candle or you can put money up. We often see cracks in the wall. We see people just come in, they stuff money into the cracks of the wall. We're asking our buddy, what are they doing here? He says, well, they're, they're putting money into the cracks of these walls, hoping that this spiritual persona, some elevated llama, some deity, uh, llama, not the animal, but the person, uh, will, will identify their sacrifice and they will reward them. And there's certain spiritual entities that you can visit in these temples and some of them will provide you uh, some kind of financial blessing. Some of them will provide you some kind of healing and physical blessing. Some of them will provide you, uh, there's some places you can go that'll actually curse people for you. You know, Buddhist style imprecatory psalms, God, you know, break their teeth with gravel. You know, this kind of thing. You, and you put your money on the wall just hoping that that's going to lead to some kind of blessing. It's sort of seed money. We don't live like that. That's Buddhism. Where I do something for some kind of good to hoping I can get something, I can extract some kind of blessing from this spiritual power that is higher than me. That's every other religion in the world. That's animism. It's not what Christians, that's not how Christians live. We live by faith, believing in a God and that his way is right. And God says they die in faith. All without having received the promise. And then in verse 40, he says, since God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now God begins to describe something that he calls better. What is this thing that is better? What is the better thing that God is providing for us? Now, you'll be excused if, if you, like many Christians, think that this better is heaven. You know, that place where I have this beautiful, you know, 20-room mansion on the 10th hole of the heavenly golf course where it never rains and the cable guy always comes when he says he's gonna come. Heaven. You know, it's just this wonderful place where I can eat and never get fat. I don't have to worry about my donut habits. That's heaven. Uh, that, I would argue, is not the better that he's talking about here. In fact, if, as you look through better, you remember if you've read through the rest of the book of Hebrews, you would see that the author is always talking about there is something that's better that's out there, and it's Jesus. 
If you, look, if you read in chapter one, Jesus talks about how Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter three, Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter four, he's better than the rest that Joshua provided them in the land. Jesus in verse, chapters four through seven, he's a better high priest than Aaron. He provides, he says, a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. The better of Hebrews is Christ and the new covenant that he brings. This is the better thing that God has provided for us, and we look forward to that. Not some kind of physical blessing, not even heaven eternally, but really all I want from this life and all I want from eternity is God, is Jesus. The psalmist would say, whom have I in heaven but you? You say, well, man, I was just looking, looking forward to seeing my old family members and maybe get reunited with my dog Fido. The psalmist was saying, who have I in heaven but you? The only thing I care about is seeing Jesus. And what do I desire on earth besides you? All I want here on earth, if I got Jesus, my heaven and earth are taken care of. Everything else is just icing on the cake. And so the better is, is Christ and the new covenant that he brings us. And yet we have all these great blessings that these Old Testament saints didn't have. We have a completed Bible. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit within us. This internal metronome click, click, keeps us in step. Galatians 5, we keep in step with that spirit. He's internally motivating us to do good. Like Jeremiah said, 31 said, that the, he's gonna take the law and he's gonna write it on our hearts. We're going to want to instinctively be obedient to the law of God because we want to. Not because there's a law outside of us saying, you need to do this or I'm gonna hurt you because I want to. He says, that's the better way of living. It's why Jesus in Matthew 11, 11 said that among, among women, there's no one born greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom is greater than him. The least in the kingdom it receives, it's not that they're a better person, but they have a much greater blessing. They're living in the blessedness of this time when we have a completed Bible. We have an indwelling Holy Spirit. We have seen the Messiah. We've seen, we're, we get to look back on the promise of what God was going to do for us to save us. He says in verse 40, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What he's saying is they looked forward to the promise of something that was someday gonna happen with a limited Bible, with a limited understanding of God, and yet they were looking forward to that Messiah when he's coming. We look back to the same Messiah, okay? But we get the full benefit of a full revelation of God in his word. It is a privilege to live for Jesus at this day and at this time. But what we do see with these Old Testament saints and with us is that the Old Testament saints had faith in God and they lived out their faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ and we live out our faith. Everybody works, works out and lives out their faith. It's what Philippians 2 was talking about when it said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he didn't say work for your salvation. We aren't saved by works. You're not going to heaven because you're a little better than the person you're sitting next to. But we work out our salvation. It's talking about something that you already possess, so use it. You bought a treadmill last year for Christmas. Well done. How often have you used it, you know? You got this thing, this, this thing that can make you strong and healthy. Work it out. You got Jesus in your heart, fantastic. What are you doing with it? How has all of this knowledge, how has the indwelling Holy Spirit of God inside of you changed how you live so that you're living lives of faith like these brothers and sisters did, only we have a greater privilege. We have God living within us, a Holy Spirit within us, and a completed Bible. How has that dramatically altered the way that we live? Faith is not immediately rewarded. 
In fact, you and I, we're more like, you know, I love the, always love the illustration, but we're like Robin Hood. We're, we're merry men, we're living in the trees. We're living in rags. We're hated by the government. We're hated by a lot of people. We're hated by the, the educated and the wealthy and all that. We're hated by uh, all these people who oppose Jesus for one reason or the other. We're a hated people. And if you will, we are social outcasts from society. If you shine your light, friends, you will be a societal outcast at some point. In America, it usually takes a little longer, but it will happen. Okay, and so we're living on the outskirts of society. We're not living in the lap of luxury like some of the people living in the cities did. We're in Sherwood Forest. We're cooking over a campfire. We smell like smoke. Everybody else, they're living for this world. They have, they have cooperated with Prince John, the prince and power of the air. Okay, they are living for this world system. And I don't care who's on the throne. I just want to use him to make my life a little more comfortable and better. But those who are faithful to the true king in the story of King Richard, who's gone away, he's on a spiritual mission, but he's coming back, isn't he? And we are living for that day. We're living for an invisible king. We reject the current system of this world. We're living for that king, for an invisible king, under his invisible rules, his invisible kingdom, and for his invisible rewards. And when we do that, spiritually speaking, in this world, God calls that faith. And he has called us all to live by faith. True faith, living for that, knowing what's coming, true faith perseveres. Let's close. Father, we thank you today as we study your word. I, I pray that like those who have lived a life of faith, God, that you would call us away from just trying to cooperate with, cooperate with Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Help us not to live for just whatever suits us and makes our life easier to try to seek a path of life that is the wide path. Lord, help us to comfort ourselves that, yeah, right now, the, native, the gate is narrow and difficult is the way that leads to life. And we know there's only a few people on that path. God, help us not to lose hope. Help us to not give up and to walk away. God, because by faith we know that you have a better thing coming. We are going to see the realization of, of, of who Jesus is. We're gonna see his kingdom come. We're gonna see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But God, right now we're hurting and we're suffering and we're maybe living lives that we're not enjoying as much as we wish we would. Maybe we have, we have lost friends, we've lost jobs. Some of us may have lost loved ones. We've lost our health. God, we're suffering, but we have not lost faith. I pray, God, that you would help us to persevere. Faithful is he who called you who also will do it. God, work your salvation out in us, we pray this morning. In Christ's name, amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.